Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17. That'll be our main text for the next little while. 2 Kings chapter 17. I'm going to begin reading here in verse 24. Bear with me, I'm going to read quite a bit here in this chapter to set the stage for what we're going to talk about this morning. 2 Kings chapter 17, beginning in verse 24. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Cutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived within its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, The nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria, they do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them, and behold, they are killing them, because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, Send there one of the priests whom you carried away from that land, and let him go and dwell there, and let him teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities in which they lived, the men of Babylon made Succoth Meneth, the men of Cuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima, the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak, and the Sepharvites burned their children in the fire of Adramelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sepharvaim. They also feared the Lord and appointed for themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared the Lord, but they also served their own gods. After the manner of the nations from among whom they had carried away, to this day, to this day they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord, and they do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law of the commandment of the, that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. The Lord made a covenant with them and commanded them, You shall not fear other gods, nor shall you bow yourselves before them, or serve them, or sacrifice to them. But you shall fear the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm. You shall bow yourselves to him, and to him you shall sacrifice. And the statutes and the rules and the law and the commandment that he wrote for you, you shall always be careful to do. You shall not fear other gods, and you shall not forget the covenant that I have made with you. You shall not fear other gods." But you shall fear the Lord your God, and he will deliver you out of the hand of your enemies. However, they would not listen, but they did according to their former manner. So these nations feared the Lord and served their carved images. And their children did likewise, as did their children's children, as their fathers did, so they do to this day. Following the conquest of by Assyria, Israel is taken off into captivity. This is common Assyrian practice. They wanted to ruin your sense of nationalism, your sense of who you are as a people, uh, your sense of culture. They wanted to take that away because they thought if they could take that away from you, you as a people would be weakened and you wouldn't rebel against them if they could take that away from you. So whenever they conquer you, just like they did the Israelites, they uproot you, they take you to some other land, they plant you there, you're no longer in your home, and their hope is that you, you lose your sense of nationalism. You're weakened through this. So what they did with everybody they conquered. And that's why other people that they had conquered were brought into the land of Samaria, where the Israelites had been, and they were placed there. And as we read, they began to, to serve their own gods. They didn't know God. 
They served their idolistic gods from their land, and God wasn't happy. And he, he brought down judgment on them in the form of lions that killed them. And they were scared, because at the time it was common belief that there were many gods, of course, they were polytheistic, and they thought that each god was over a specific territory. That, as, I mean, we read the phrase over and over again, the god of the land. That was what they believed. They thought God had a territory. He was the god of this area, and their gods were their gods back home. That's how they believed. And the king of Assyria obviously agreed with them and sent the priests to teach them how to please and appease this god, but they didn't do it. They didn't do it. They have served him, but they didn't serve him only. They didn't truly love him. These people are known as the Samaritans. And it gives us a glimpse in this passage into their religion and what it looked like. And obviously, we can look at this and pick it apart and know their religion was flawed. There was issues there, obviously. Things they had wrong. Things they needed to fix. Some of it, it seems severe. Big issues. Of course that's wrong. Of course we'd never be like that. But I think there's a few things we should take note of that the Samaritans struggled with in this passage. A few things that are eerily similar to our walk, our religion today. Some things that we have in common with them that might be a little too close for comfort. The first thing I want to notice about the Samaritan religion is that it was a religion of fear. Look in verse 32. It says, They also fear the Lord. Verse 33, They fear the Lord, yet they serve their own gods. Verse 41, So these nations fear the Lord, yet they serve their own idols. They fear the Lord. Sounds like a good thing, right? To fear the Lord. But the kind of fear they had for God was the wrong kind. Look in verse 34. It says, they do not fear the Lord. It says over and over again, they fear the Lord, they fear the Lord, but they don't fear the Lord. It's not contradicting itself. It's talking about the type of fear they had. There is a proper fear of the Lord. There's a fear of the Lord that we all need to have as Christians. Sometimes, though, I think we're guilty of, of taking it too far, of having the type of fear that the Samaritans had. They were just afraid of what God could do to them physically. They were afraid of the lions coming back. So they tried to appease him. That was the fear of the Lord they had. But the fear of the Lord that we should have, it's taught by Jesus in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. In verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We should fear him. Not because of what he can do to us physically, like the Samaritans did, but because he's all-powerful. He controls eternity. He can send us to hell. He has that power. He is to be feared in some ways. The apostles taught it as well. Turn to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. God expects to be feared. We should fear him in some way. 
Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. In verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We've got to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Part of having a relationship with God is understanding His power, fearing Him in some manner. We've got to have that fear, just like a father-son relationship. Do I live in fear of my father 24-7? No. But as a kid, did I fear him on some level? Did I know what he could do to me? Absolutely. He proved it several times when I was not very good. We should fear him. On some level, there is a fear that we should have. It's, it's also taught in the Old Testament. Turn to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1, and verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You notice how in, a, in several of these passages, fear of the Lord is, is kind of tied in with the beginning, the building blocks of our relationship with God, that it's, it's at the foundational level. It's necessary. We've got to have it. Saying in Proverbs chapter 14, chapter 14, beginning in verse 26, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, that one may turn away from the snares of death. Yet we fear him. But this passage talks about what knowing the fear of the Lord, having it offers us, that we can take refuge in him because we know his power. We know his might. Yeah, we fear him, but the very things we fear we can use. We can take refuge in. We can be comforted in. That they are a blessing to us. The fear of the Lord is a blessing. It'd be different to serve a God that was completely powerless and held nothing over anyone, that had no power. Why serve that God? Why? Having a fear of the Lord is a blessing. Go to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before Him, but it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. He's wicked because he has no fear of God. He doesn't know what God can do. He does what he wants. He doesn't serve God because he doesn't know what God is capable of. Go to chapter 12 in Ecclesiastes. Passage we all know well, chapter 12 and verse 13. The end of the matter is this, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole of man. We've got to fear God. So what is it? What is a fear of God? Well, I'm making up my own definition here. I think it's similar, as I alluded to, the fear of a father. I think a fear of God is an awesome reverence Towards God, knowing what He's capable of, knowing His power, an awesome reference towards God that motivates us to turn from evil, to cling to Him, and to serve Him at all times. I think that's the kind of fear of the Lord we're supposed to have. And that is not at all the type of fear of the Lord that the Samaritans had in 2 Kings. It is not a fear 
like the Samaritans had, where we never think of God in the good times. Yet we tremble at the thought of facing His wrath or, or what He could do to us when things are rough. It's not the type of fear of the Lord to have. Only the lions provoked the Samaritans' thought of God. Verse 25 and 26 there points that out to us. When they did think of God, it was just a tremble of what He could do to them physically. It was to just... Oh, what do we need to do to get him off our backs, to leave us alone so he won't kill us with some lions? That's the fear they had. Is that our attitude? What do I need to do to, to get God to give me a nice, cushy life, what I want, uh, the bare minimum to scrape by and get into heaven, and to get what I want from him? Is that the fear we have like the Samaritans had, or is it different? We do things like the Samaritans all the time today. We think of God. We pray to God. We need God when we're sick. But we forget Him when we're well. We don't need Him then. We remember Him in our calamities, but not in our joys, not in the good times. When faced with problems, we run to Him, but when things are good and we're enjoying prosperity, we push Him to the back burner. We don't want anything to do with Him. We don't need Him right now. We're like the stereotypical depiction of a sailor who prays and begs and even makes a deal with God while he's at sea in the middle of a storm that God delivers him and gets him through it. Please don't let us be shipwrecked. But then he returns to land when he's been delivered. He goes right back to his ways of drunkenness and revelries and partying upon land. We'll run to him when we're fearful, when we need him, when our physical status is in danger. But as soon as we've gotten rid of the danger, as soon as we've gotten rid of the fear, as soon as we've gotten rid of the trouble, we do just like the Samaritans did. And we push him away until the lions show back up. And then all of a sudden we need him again. That's exactly what they did. If we turn to God only in the hard times, our religion is no different than the Samaritan one in 2 Kings. Yet with a proper fear of God, we will draw close enough to Him through obedience that we will know just how gracious and loving He truly is. Because that's what the fear of the Lord gets us to. Then we can shift our service to Him from one out of love, from, from one out of fear of judgment, to one out of love. Turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4, beginning in verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. I know for me and probably for most of you in the room, what got you in the water the first time was fear. You were afraid of hell. Got you in the water. And there's a time and place for that. There's a time in our walk when we are weak that that is what needs to motivate us. And it's why we have it. But we need to get to what John calls us to. Be serving out of love. And with a proper fear of the Lord, we can. We can realize just how gracious and loving and amazing He is. We don't need to have a religion 
that is fearful in the way that the Samaritan religion was. You need to have a healthy fear of the Lord. Second thing I want to know, notice about their religion is that it was a religion strictly of form. There was no substance to it. Their hearts were not in their service. They kept serving their own images, not even God alone. They didn't mean what they did. What service they did give to him possessed only form, no substance, no heart. Yeah, form is needed. Absolutely. We do things a certain way because that's the way the Scriptures outline for us. We're called to do them a certain way. Absolutely, we need some form. But it is really easy and common for us today to be guilty of exactly what the Samaritans were guilty of. I kind of talked about it in the first sermon. We have a form. We have the Lord's Supper. But is there substance there? Or is it form only? Form without substance is not worship. Think about the word worship. If you break it down, worth-ship. Worship is showing God that He's worth it. That He's worth our time. He's worth our energy. He's worth our effort. That's what worship is. If worship is form with no substance, it's not worship. Turn to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 7. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. It is the hypocritical way of service to the Lord. It's hypocritical to be formed with no substance. It's what Jesus rips the Pharisees for over and over and over again in the New Testament, that you are all formed and there's no substance to you. You're hypocritical. It's always Adam for that. You can be a moral person. You can be the, the best person in the group. You can show up to church every Sunday. You can play the part. But if there's no substance, if there's no true conviction, if there's no living it when you're out in the world, it's not going to do you any good. They went through the motions. They played the part. They thought they had God tricked. And to think, we're serving you. We're doing good. Keep the lines away. We're all about you, God. But were they? They weren't. And oftentimes we play that part too. We sing, give me the Bible. Do we ever take the time to read it? Spend time in it? Do we mean it? Or is it just words? We sing, here am I, send me. But are we ever actually willing to go and to do the work that he's put forth for us? that we have doors open for. We doing it or are we just singing it? Is it form or do we mean it? We sing wonderful story of love. We sing it while we're bored and emotionless and, and, and don't have any real meaning. And if the story is so wonderful, are we doing our best to share it with other people as often as we can? Or are we keeping it in here just while we're singing it? Worship is something that should be emotional. It should be heartfelt. It should be sincere. It should be meant. Worship is not supposed to merely be form. Substance needs to be with it. I think David is the perfect example of what form and substance together looks like. The man was sincere. He had his flaws, absolutely. But he was sincere. He meant it when he worshiped God. Turn to Psalm 138. Psalm 138. I want to look at a... A few different psalms of David here. 
Psalm 138, pretty much all these, you could keep reading the rest of the psalm and the, the pattern holds true. It, it's all throughout his psalms. You see his sincere, meant, heartfelt praise to the Lord. Sometimes it's praise. Sometimes it's David pouring out his heart before the Lord. Sometimes it's mourning. Whatever it was, David was sincere in it all the time. Psalm 138 and verse 1, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for steadfast love and for your faithfulness. You have exalted above all things your name and your word. Turn the page over a couple pages to 146. Psalm 146. Again, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. David is serious. He wants to praise him. He's serious about it. It's, it's heartfelt. It is not just form with David. Staying there in, in 147 now, verse 1. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. Do we have that attitude right there in verse 1 of praising God? Is that how we feel about worship on Sunday when we show up? Or is it form? Do we mean it? Is our religion, is our worship just going through the motions, is it just form? Or do we have some conviction, some emotion, some substance behind it? If not, again, it's no better than the religion of the Samaritans. The last thing I want to notice about the religion of the Samaritans is that it was a religion of compromise. Look in verse 41, if you're back in, in 2 Kings where we read. Verse 41, it says that they, they serve God, but they also serve their own gods. They liked their gods more than they liked the God. So they gave God lip service, but they gave their gods their true service. Their true, their true um, of diligence and devotion was to their gods. They were compromising. They were like, yeah, we're, we'll give you something, but we're not really going to serve you. We're going to compromise. We're not going to fully keep what you've told us. We're going to do what we want with our gods. The, the priest who was sent back to teach them, it talks about it, how the decree was to serve God and God only. They knew it. He told them that was the command. But they wanted to serve God, but not how he wanted. They wanted to compromise, serve him a little bit, but do what they wanted. Serve their gods. It was a religion of compromise. I think I've preached a sermon here about compromise. We do it all the time. So easy to fall victim to. When we try to serve God and please man and serve the world, it's not going to work. In fact, the scripture says it's impossible to do. Turn back to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Beginning in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. When we try to do both, 
when we try to serve God, when we try to please the world, when we try to sit on the fence and we're not willing to be all in, the world always wins. It will show up in our jobs. It will show up in our recreation, our school, whatever we do. Show up. There'll be decisions here and there. Well, the world always wins. People will be able to tell. You'll be able to tell. You'll know it deep down, whether you admit it to yourself or not, that the world's winning. Because whenever it's not full service to God, God's not winning. Because that's what He expects. These things and the acceptance of them will always take priority over God if we're trying to walk the line, if we're trying to sit on the fence. Think about the church at Laodicea. They were lukewarm. They served God, but they were full of compromise. They weren't all in. God said that was repulsive enough he'd spew them out of his mouth. Turn to Matthew chapter 6, a passage we know very well. Matthew chapter 6. In verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't do it. Serving both, serving the world, serving God, mixing the two, sitting on the fence, trying to compromise. Scripture says it's impossible. There is no compromise with God. It is God and God alone, or it is the world. We can't try to mix the two. You can't try to mix God and something else like the Samaritans did. They wanted God and their gods. God and what we've always done back home. God and what we really want. Doesn't work. Just like the Samaritans, they weren't serious about God. When we mix things with God, we won't be either. We won't be serious about God. Compromise not being allowed is is a theme that appears in Scripture over and over and over again. It's taught in the Old Testament. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Drop down to verse 14. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst, and he is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and destroy you from off the face of the earth. That's pretty serious language. He doesn't like being compromised with. He doesn't like other things being mixed in with him. He wants to be it. He's a jealous God. Takes it pretty seriously when we don't let him have what he has a right to, which is us. When we are not all in, Not a happy God. Compromise isn't allowed. It's also taught by Jesus. Turn to Luke 14. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That sounds pretty serious. I think he's supposed to be first. There's a lot of important things listed there. I think he wants to be above them. Things that are easy to mix in with him. We do it all the time. We want to give other things precedence. He wants to be first. Look, staying in Luke chapter 14, look at verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. He's it. He wants to be first. It's hard to make him first sometimes. 
But we owe it to him to try. Not to compromise. Not to mix other things in. James chapter 4 teaches us something <clears throat> pretty serious about compromise. James chapter 4. And verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's spiritual adultery to compromise. That's what it is. You mix other things in with God, it's adultery. Spiritual adultery. It's a big deal. It says it makes you an enemy of God. I don't want to be an enemy of God. I don't want to mix other things in with Him. I do. But I need to try to put Him first. To make Him the end all be all. So that we are not enemies of God. So instead of compromising, let's do what Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33 says. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's not compromise. Seeking him and his kingdom first. That is what he expects from us. Not mixing other things in with him. Not compromising. Not putting him on the back burner. Not only needing him when it's convenient. Not giving him the bare minimum. It's not what he expects. It's what he got from the Samaritans, and he wasn't happy about it. We better do better than they do. Or we're no better than they are. Yeah, we can read that passage and we can point out everything that's wrong with the Samaritans and everything that was wrong with their religion, but we got a lot of the same problems they do. Easy traps to fall into. Obviously, the Samaritan religion was wrong, but sometimes it looks eerily similar to ours. So this morning, I want to leave you with three challenges, three challenges that come straight from Scripture. Turn me to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. John calls us something to something here. 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. The entire book of 1 John talks about assurance and knowing you're good with God and having peace and comfort and assurance in that. That's what John was harping on. He harped on it a lot. Obviously, he wanted that to be the case for us. John calls us to live assured, not to live fearful, not to have a religion of fear like the Samaritans, but to live assured. Challenge number one from John is do away with fear. Do away with a fear-motivated religion and live assured. Live with God through love. <laughs> Having the fear of Him in the back of your mind, as it is healthy, but to live assured. Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Paul <clears throat> gives us something here too. Romans chapter 2 and verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul had to combat all the time all these people who wanted to keep the form-based religion of Judaism around. They wanted to keep that. They had to fight the Judaizers all the time. 
keeping the old traditions, keeping the old ways, making the new religion, trying to keep the form parts around. This is what they were used to. And Paul says, no, it's not what it's about. It's not about form. It's not about outward expressions that are habitual and, and form-based. It's about the heart. It's about substance. It's about what you mean. It's about your love. Paul pushed back against form-based religion. He called for a religion of substance. It's what the New Testament was about. He knew we couldn't keep it all. He knew there was more that needed to be there. It needed to be heart-based. It needed to be substantial. Paul calls us to do away with form, to do away with a religion that is just form, and to mix in some substance that our heart needs to be in it. And finally, back to 1 Kings, 1 Kings this time. Chapter 18. Elijah issues a compromise to the people he's talking to here, and I think it is one that resonates just as true for us as it did for them. 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 21. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Elijah says, don't compromise. Don't mix the two. Don't struggle to make up your mind. It is God and God only. And if God is Lord, serve Him. He knew we had to choose God and God alone. Elijah calls us to give up a religion of compromise, to be wholeheartedly in to what God calls us to do. Let's not fall into the traps of the Samaritans. Let's have the religion that's outlined in the New Testament. It's expected for us not one of fear, not one of form, not one of compromise. That's the mistakes the Samaritans made. Let's learn from their mistakes. Let's be better than they were. Let's fix the areas we have wrong. If you're here this morning, you've never put on Christ, why not do that this morning? There's no better way to live. There's no better family to be a part of. There are endless promises that God has offered to anyone who is willing to do so, who is willing to submit their lives to Him. Why not make that decision this morning? Or if you need to make things right between you and your Lord, We'd be happy to help you in any way that we can. Make those needs known as we stand and sing.